Wow, uh, what a story, right? It starts out, you know, well enough. It seems as if Jesus has just got some nice things to say about truth and freedom, and uh, um, it's all good through the first couple verses, and then, wham, we got a conflict on our hands here. We got an issue, we got a problem, right? Because Jesus is confronting something that he sees at work in the lives of these Jewish men with whom he's talking. And what he's confronting, frankly, becomes more and more clear as the passage goes on. He's confronting their allegiance to the father of lies. They think they're Abraham's descendants. They think they're children of God. They think it's all good. They've got it all right. And yet the fact that they want to kill Jesus betrays the reality that they are not following the word of God and the truth of God. They're actually following the devil, the father of lies. So this is an amazing story and one in which um, there are lots of insights for us to, to peek at and to learn from with regard to our own experience. If anything, uh, if, if there's anything that I want you to consider right out of the gate this morning It's the simple reality that this story tells us even those who think they are religious, even those who think they have it all right, even those who think they know God can still be deceived. So there's a warning here, a pretty serious warning for us to think about and talk about together. The point being, right, that all of us are vulnerable. All of us are susceptible to the lies of the enemy. You never get to a point, even if you're in Christ, even if you're a genuine follower of Christ, and you know God, you really know God. Not, you don't just say you know God, you really know God. Even if that's you, even if you've been walking by faith in Jesus Christ for a good long portion of your life, you can still be subject to deception in one form or another. So we're going to talk about a couple different challenges, a couple different forms of deception that the enemy is very likely to throw our way, and we're going to talk about how to avoid those. And let me just begin with an illustration from my own experience, because I want you to know, right, even even for me as a pastor, there's a battle, right? There's a battle at work over my mind, And I've come to recognize it. I've come to learn about it. And so, thankfully, I'm more aware of the dynamics of that battle. And that helps me to prevent myself from falling into deception. But even as a pastor, I'm not immune from the enemy's lies. None of us are, right? So, by way of example, you know, I'll, I'll just share with you an experience I had several years ago now but it's one that actually revisits me from time to time. It's a thought pattern, an idea that I grapple with, okay? And what, what it's come out of is the experience of pastoral ministry, believe it or not. Being a pastor has lots of ups, lots of rewards, lots of uh, fulfillment, lots of joy comes from serving in this role, serving with you and for you. But there are times when, when working as a pastor is really difficult, particularly when 
people that you, that you care about and people that you trusted um, get upset about something and decide, I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else. Okay? And I'm just going to be really honest with you that over the course of time, that's probably been the most difficult part of pastoral ministry for me. And there are times over the course of my life when someone has left for what I personally thought wasn't a great reason, and the thought occurred to me, you're just not a very good pastor. You're just not good enough. The problem is with me, right? Because I'm just not doing a good enough job. Now, is it true or is it a lie? That's the question, right? And, you know, I'm not going to stand here and suggest to you that I've never been at fault in any of these relational, you know, uh, situations or that people have never left for a good reason. But what I'm, what I'm sharing with you is that for me, the form of attack in my mind comes as an idea. It comes as, as a thought. And the thought is, I'm not good enough to be an effective pastor. I'm not good enough for people to, to be loyal or faithful or to hang in there with me over the course of time, right? People are going to bail because of my shortcomings, and I've had to come to terms with, with that thought. Is that thought from God or is that thought from another source, from the pit of hell? So I offer that to you just as, a, as an insight and as an example regarding the way that the enemy loves to, to plant ideas in our minds that get us thinking in the wrong direction. That's the nature of deception. So let's start with this. As we think about this passage from John chapter 8 and Jesus' interaction with these Jewish men, let's, let's recognize that what Jesus is describing is a battle for the minds of men and women. There's an ongoing battle between God and the devil. If we take Jesus at his word, this is what he's describing. There's an ongoing battle between God and the devil being fought over the minds of people with the weapon of ideas. Ideas. I want you to think about this statement very carefully. What I'm saying to you is that your mind and my mind, the mind of every human being, is a battleground. That may be a new, uh, a new concept for you. That, that in itself may be a new idea. And maybe right now you're asking yourself, wait a minute, I've never heard this before. I've never thought of this before. How do I know it's true? Well, I believe it's true because it's what Jesus is talking about. I believe it's true because it comes, this idea comes to us from the Word of God, which I happen to believe is a reliable source, an authoritative source when it comes to truth and lies. We live in a world, right, let's be honest, where um, truth is, is kind of shifty. I mean, people, everybody wants to define truth by their own standards. And, and we've, we've actually come to the point where moral truth or spiritual truth is viewed by the vast majority of people as something that's relative, not, you know, not like black and white, but all different shades of gray. 
So what you believe is okay for you as long as it works for you, and what I believe is okay for me as long as it works for me, and I should just respect what you believe, and you should respect what I believe, but I shouldn't try to tell you what you should believe because that's what I believe, right? You tracking with me? That's the way people think in our culture. What I'm telling you this morning does not fit with that politically correct narrative. What I'm telling you is that I believe that the Word of God conveys the truth of God, that Jesus embodied that truth, and that we can, when He says something, we can take Him at His word. Jesus was not a liar. Jesus spoke the truth, and Jesus embodied the truth. Jesus represented the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we give ourselves to Him, He wants to teach us the truth so that we can walk in freedom from the lies of the enemy, right? So taken as a whole then, this story from the life of Jesus exemplifies, probably better than any other passage, but there are some other ones too, it exemplifies this cosmic spiritual warfare that's taking place between God and the devil over the hearts and minds of men and women. The point is, they both want our allegiance, The devil wants to keep us from being in right relationship with God, and God wants us, of course, to be in right relationship with him. And the whole battle is fought over the mind and in the mind with ideas as the primary weapon. God wants us to hear what he has to say and to accept those ideas as truth, but the enemy is all about the business, all about the work of planting ideas in our minds that are not true. They're fundamentally deceptive and misleading. So the dialogue then between Jesus and these Jewish leaders in John chapter 8 comes to a point of contention. And the point of contention has to do with this basic question. I want you to notice a basic question that they're debating and discussing. Whose children are these people? these Jewish men, whose children are they? Are they children of God or are they children of the devil? And in this case, they think they're children of God, but Jesus says otherwise. Jesus says, sorry guys, but actually on the basis of what you're doing and saying, we have good evidence before us that you are actually children of the devil. Right? So when I use the word ideas to describe the weapons of this warfare that's taking place over the minds of men and women, I mean it in the sense of beliefs, convictions about the way things really are. Beliefs and convictions about the way things really are. Those are ideas. We believe any number, any long list of different ideas about God, about the nature of God, about the world that we live in, and about ourselves. The question is, which ones are true and which ones aren't? So clearly, the Jews, in this case, thought that because of their Abrahamic heritage, they were good with God, and there was nothing for them to worry about. They, you know, they, were, they were good. But Jesus said to them, you know, fact is, guys, actually, you're enslaved. You're slaves to sin, and you're unable to recognize the truth of who I am 
so that you can get free from that slavery. Instead of listening to God, they were actually listening to lies from the pit of hell, which caused them to want to kill Jesus. So instead of holding to the teachings of Jesus, they were actually carrying out the devil's desires instead, not wanting to follow Jesus, but wanting to kill him. So this is what we might call right, a, a serious reality check for these guys, a serious reality check. And what I want to encourage you to, uh, to, to think about this morning, what I want to invite you into is a reality check of your own. I'm not suggesting that we here are children of the devil, that our situation is as bad as the one that we're reading about. These guys were seriously deceived. But what I am saying is that you might think that you understand the truth, that you know the truth, that you believe the truth, and yet I'll almost guarantee that every single one of us struggles with some area of deception. And the key is to ask the Lord to shine a light on that so that we can become aware of it and break its power. So how do we fit into the story? Well, um, we fit into the story like this, right? Most of us would want to think of ourselves as blessed to be identified among the true children of God. And yet, as confident as we may be about all of our beliefs, there's something there's something that we need to identify. Each one of us, I'm sure, has an area of deception that we've fallen prey to and that we need to identify so that we can break its power. That's the point of step two in the steps to freedom. So I want you to see, um, if you just look with me at the text a moment, John 8, 32 to 35, I want you to see the way that Jesus describes the issue at play here, the warfare at play here. He says, to the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, let me just pause a minute before we read further, and I want you to think about the reality of that statement but I want you to recognize this is a progressive experience in our lives. What I'm explaining, what I'm trying to share with you is that when you come to faith in Christ, you don't just automatically suddenly believe everything that's true and not ever believe anything that's deceptive, right? What Jesus is describing is a progressive reality, a progressive experience in our lives. So we come to him, we believe in him, we recognize him as the source of truth, and then we have to invite him over the course of time to show us everything that's true and to grab hold of what's true so that we can walk in greater and greater freedom from deception. This is a process that we have to engage and we have to engage it proactively. We have to be consistently going to the Lord saying, Jesus, would you show me? Would you show me, Lord, wherever there's an area of deception in my life that I'm not aware of? Make me aware. Open my eyes so that I can see the lies that the devil wants me to believe. So Jesus continues 
right? These guys answer him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we'll be set free? And Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin, and a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed, right? The point being, there's no other way to be free spiritually than in and through relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's talk about how this gets worked out in our lives. I want to give you two specific examples, two specific examples of ways in which, and this is not exhaustive, of course, these are just two big ones to start with, to get you thinking along the lines of how this plays out in our, in our experience. I want to give you two examples of how deception works and ways in which the enemy likes to try to deceive even the people of God, even the followers of Jesus like us, right? Or most of us anyway. I'm not sure where, where each one of you are in relationship to Christ, so I don't want to be presumptuous here, but if you're new to this, if you're trying to figure it all out, um, we'll, we'll talk about that you know, later, that um, really the, the process of coming to freedom in Christ begins with recognizing the truth of who he is and what he did. Apart from that, freedom is, is um, difficult to experience, if not impossible. So here's the first example I want you to think about. The most basic deception of all, and I would say even the root of all other deceptions, is the idea that what God says cannot be trusted. It's the idea that what God says cannot be trusted. Right, again, remember the words of Jesus. The key verse in all of this story is John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So, of course, you know, if we, if we follow Jesus' logic here, um, truth brings freedom. But knowledge is the awareness of truth. So the flow is, is in that direction. The truth can't set you free if you don't know the truth. Right? So the testimony of Jesus is that we have this formidable adversary who will say anything to lead us astray from the path of truth. How does he do that? Well, he often starts by causing us to question the truth of what God has said. This is what I would call sowing the seeds of mistrust in our relationship with God. So Jesus goes on to describe this dynamic. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Think about that. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. I want you to clue in for a minute on the phrase, he was a murderer from the beginning. What's Jesus talking about? What's he referring to? Well, some of you, if you're, if you're astute and aware here of, of biblical history, are, are, are even now recognizing Jesus is talking about the fall of man. 
He's going all the way back to the very beginning of the story, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, right? So what do we come to? He, he creates men and women in his image, and he's delighted. He's pleased. This is good. This isn't just good. This is very good. This is double good, right? And then in Genesis chapter 3, we come to the fall of man, the fall of humanity. And what I mean by that is, um, if you, again, if you know the story, um, Adam and Eve are tempted by the serpent. They commit sin. They break the rules that God has put before them. And at that point, sin enters the human race. Wrongdoing enters the human race. And everything becomes polluted from that point on by wrongdoing or sin, selfishness, if you will. So listen to the story again, Genesis 3, because this is what John's referring back to, and it's important history, biblical history and theology, right? From the very beginning, right? The stage is set for the dynamic of what Jesus is describing in John chapter 8. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? There's the question right there. He's questioning Eve. Did God really say that? So the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You won't die? Come on, that's ridiculous. You're not going to die, the serpent said. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So there it is, right? Right out of the gate. How does the fall of man take place? Because Eve fell for the devil's line of crap. Sorry, that's a little blunt, but... So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and desirable for gaining wisdom, she believed it, she took some and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Right? Genesis 3, 13 then, looking back on this and describing what had happened. The Lord God says to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman, in a moment of recognition, says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There you have it, right? And what I'm suggesting to you is that at the root of every act of disobedience and sin is a deception. This is the enemy's native language. This is the way that he tempts us by, not, by causing us not to trust that what God said is really true. Right? So in, in the New Testament, we get a commentary on this story from the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to the church. And he's saying, beware, be careful. Don't think that you're immune from deception because just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds could be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now again, how did the serpent deceive Eve? By convincing her not to trust what God had already said. That's the bottom line. So the implication here is that not all ideas that come to us are 
good ideas or God ideas. Some of them are deceptive. And you can, ideas come to us, just think about this in practical terms, ideas come to us, I think, from four different sources, okay? You're capable of having an idea by yourself. So some ideas are self-generated. Some of them are good, some of them are not so good, right? Some ideas, I'd suggest, are generated by the world around us, by other people or by things that we see and hear in the world around us. Some of those can be true and some can be untrue or false. And then, of course, what Jesus is saying and recognizing in this, in this story from John 8 is that the devil himself is capable of planting ideas in the minds of men and women. Of course, his ideas are never true, right? They're always false because he's the father of lies. That's his native language. And then last but not least, certainly best of all, ideas can, can come to us and be planted in our minds from God himself. And those ideas are always true, right? So you can't trust any of the other three sources because ideas that generate from you, from the world, or from the devil may be deceptive. But the point is, you should always be able to trust an idea that comes to you from God himself because he is not a liar. He is the essence of truth. So Jesus is confronting the work of the devil in the minds of these Jewish men. And he goes right after it. He's not bashful. He's not shy. He's, I mean, you might say he's actually picking a fight, right? Because he's, he's passionate about this. He understands what the stakes are. Jesus is like, I don't want you to be in bondage. I don't want you to believe something that's not true. Come on, you guys. You're you're, you're in the weeds. Your mind is believing the wrong thing. And again, the point of all this is that, that deception is one of the enemy's greatest weapons against us. In fact, I'd, I'd say it's the, it's, it's his, again, because it's his native language, every temptation is rooted in deception. Everything that you want to do that is not good or right the temptation to want to do it comes from a deception that, it, that it's worth it, right? That it's not all that bad, that you won't pay a price for it, that it will bring you fulfillment or joy, all of which is untrue. So the first and most fundamental deception is that God can't be trusted, Every other deception comes from that one. But now, with the few minutes we have left, let me zip on down to one more area of deception that's really significant for many people, even many Christians. There's a second great area of deception, and I know this is a vast generalization. I mean, there are lots of areas of deception, lots of examples of deception that we could talk about. But I wanted to pinpoint this one because, A, it's, it's right there in the story, and B, I think it's, it's, it's prevalent, right? It's common that even as Christians, we would struggle with this particular form of deception from the enemy. Here it is. Here's what I'm talking about. A second great area of deception that people are vulnerable to is how we think of ourselves and our own sense of identity. 
how we think of ourselves and who we are. So, this goes back to the story I shared earlier about my own experience. Struggling, battling with the thought, the idea, the belief that I'm not good enough. That's an example of a lie that the devil would love to have me believe because it would disable my, me as a pastor. It would, it would undercut my effectiveness. If I believe that, I'm going to live it out. I'm going to walk it out in how I interact with people, right? If I step up here every Sunday and I, and I lack confidence because I just believe I'm a lousy pastor, I'm not going to be able to serve very well in that role. Now, obviously, I do have to recognize my shortcomings. I have to be humble and recognize that apart from the, the work of God, the power of God, the presence of God, the grace of God, the gifts of God, you know, I can't be a good pastor. But if I walk around all the time thinking, I, I'm just not good enough to be, you know, to really do this, I'm going to live up to that belief or down to that belief is a better way to say it. So what I'm saying is we all struggle with different beliefs or ideas, again, regarding who we are and, and how we should think about ourselves, right? If I asked you to, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if I ask you to raise your hand, I'm sure many of you would if I said, have you ever struggled with the thought, I'm ugly? Have you ever struggled with the thought, I'm worthless? Have you ever struggled with the thought, I'm a failure? Have you ever struggled with the thought, I deserve nothing? I, I, deserve, um, I deserve failure. We could go on and on and on thinking of examples of thoughts or ideas that plague us. And in fact, oftentimes we create these little narratives in our mind, these little stories, and we, we tell ourselves this story uh, we, we make up a story uh, regarding our own shortcomings, our own failures, our own insecurities, right? And we rehearse it over and over again. We dwell on it. We think about it. And we allow these ideas that are rooted in deception to captivate the way that we think about ourselves. Sometimes it's because of our own failures, because of things that have happened to us, um, things that we've brought upon ourselves, we fall into a pattern of sin, whatever, and then we begin to think of ourselves as a lousy, rotten, you know, sinner, uh, whatever, incapable of overcoming whatever that challenge is. Sometimes it's because of things that happen to us by other people, sins against us, where we've been victimized, and those experiences cause us to think in a certain way. I'm going to give you an example in just a moment. But I want you to, I want you to recognize now in the story how Jesus speaks to the identity, the sense of identity that these guys had and how it was misplaced, right? How, how they had been deceived into thinking something that wasn't true about themselves. So John 8, 34 to 36, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Right? He's talking here about the difference between slaves and sons. And he's saying that every person starts out as a slave to sin, but 
Every person has the potential to become a child of God, a son or daughter of the living God. If the Son, that's Jesus himself, sets you free, you will be free indeed, and you will become adopted into the family of God as a child of God. So your identity shifts, right? What he's talking about is our sense of identity. Outside of Christ, we should rightly understand ourselves as slaves to sin, although most people don't see it that way, right? That's the irony. Only once you've come to Christ can you look back and and realize, oh my gosh, I was a slave, right? Because you've been set free. And so you're looking back on that, recognizing that you were a slave, but now you're something else. Now you're a son or daughter of the living God. So this is what Jesus is talking about. And what he's confronting in these guys is the deceptive notion that they're good, that, they're, that they've got it right, that they are children of God and not slaves to sin, right? Because their righteousness wasn't based on faith in him. It was based on something else. So a few verses later, verses 37 to 39, Jesus says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you've heard from your father. Abraham's our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, says Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. So what I'm, what I'm pointing out to you here is that this whole interchange has to do with a misplaced sense of identity that these guys had. In this case, they thought they were children of God, but they really weren't. They thought everything was okay, but it really wasn't, right? Now, it can go both ways. For us who are in Christ, we often make the opposite problem. We have the opposite problem. We think in the opposite direction, right? We Everything has been forgiven and covered by the grace of God in Christ, and yet we, judge, we, we fall under judgment or condemnation, or we begin to think of ourselves as less than we really are. So these guys over here think that they're more than they really are, and we tend to think that we're less than we really are. I love this um, picture, and it, it hangs over my desk in my office. And I brought it out today because I want you to recognize the truth of who you are in Christ. This is what the Bible says, right? Every single statement in this picture comes straight from the Word of God. Who, and the title is, Who I Am in Christ, right? I am accepted. I am God's child. As a disciple, I am a friend of Jesus Christ. I have been justified. I am united with the Lord, and I am one with Him in spirit. I have been bought with a price, and I belong to God. I am a member of Christ's body. I have been chosen by God and adopted as his child. I have been redeemed and forgiven of all my sins. I am complete in Christ. I have direct access to the throne of grace through Jesus. I am secure. I am free from condemnation. I am assured that God works for my good in all circumstances. I am free from any condemnation brought against me, and I cannot be separated from the love of God. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God. I am hidden with Christ in God. I am confident that God will complete the good work he started in me. I am a citizen of heaven. I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I am born of God, and the evil one cannot touch me. I am significant. I am a branch of Jesus Christ, the true vine, and a channel of his life. I have been chosen and appointed to bear fruit. I am God's temple. 
I'm a minister of reconciliation for God. I am seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly realms. I am God's workmanship. I may approach God with freedom and confidence. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can anybody say amen to that? That's the truth of who you are from God's perspective. Do you believe it? Now, by way of contrast, let me close with a story about a young woman who was subject to lies, particularly regarding her identity. And I offer this as an example of how this works, right? The lies can come from many different places, from many different sources, from many different experiences in life. But behind and beneath them all is the father of lies who wants you to be deceived. He does not want you to believe what you're meant to believe about who you are in Christ. So this is the story of a young woman named Anne. Praise God. I think this is the answer I've been searching for. I'm not crazy. I don't have an overactive imagination as I've been told and believed for years. I'm just normal like everybody else. I have struggled through my whole Christian experience with bizarre thoughts that were so embarrassing that I usually never told anyone else. How could I admit to someone in the church what had crossed my mind? I tried once to honestly share part of what I was struggling with in a Christian group. People sucked in their breath. There was a stiff silence. Then someone changed the subject. I could have died. I learned quickly that these things are not acceptable in the church, or at least they weren't at that time. I didn't know what it meant to take every thought captive. I tried to do this once, but I was unsuccessful because I blamed myself for all this stuff that was wrong in my life. I thought all those thoughts were mine and that I was the one who was doing this to myself. There's always been a terrible cloud hanging over my head because of these issues. I never could accept the fact that I was really righteous because I didn't feel righteous. Praise God, now I understand. It was only Satan, not me. I do have worth. The problem is so easy to deal with when you know what it is. I was abused as a child. My mother lied to me a lot, and Satan used the things that she said, things like, you're lazy, you'll never amount to anything. Over and over, he's been feeding me such junk, preying on my worst fears. At night, I would have nightmares that the lies were true. And in the morning, I would be so depressed that I'd have a difficult time shaking this stuff off. Being abused, I was taught not to think for myself. I did what I was told, and I never questioned anything for fear of being beaten. This set me up for Satan's mind games. I was conditioned to have someone lie to me about myself, primarily my own mother. I feared taking control of my mind because I didn't know what would happen. I believed I would lose my identity because I wouldn't have anyone to tell me what to do. In actuality, I've gained my identity for the first time. I'm not a product of my mother's lies anymore. I am not the product of the garbage that Satan feeds me. Now, I am finally me, a child of the living God. Through all this junk, Satan has terrorized me. I've been living in fear of myself, 
But praise God, I think it's finally over. I used to worry whether a thought came from Satan or myself. Now I realize that's not the issue. I just need to examine the thought according to the word of God and then choose the truth. Almost done here. I feel a little unsure writing this so soon. Maybe I should take a wait-and-see attitude. But I'm sensing such joy and peace that I feel in my gut it must be real. Praise God for the truth and for answered prayer. I am finally free. So, with that, my friends, let's, let's move into step two. I want to transition... I want to pray that God would lead us as we do this, and then I'm going to take you through step two of the Steps to Freedom, which is all about breaking the power of lies from your mind. So we need to pray that that the Spirit of God would would lead this um, interaction with Him and do what only He can do to bring freedom.